On episode 31 of the pod, Justin finally gets a question. We go through the various political problems facing several prominent politicians. We talk about the power grid in Texas. We revisit the Disney versus Gina Carano issue, and we discuss Rush Limbaugh and the rise of alternative media. You're listening to the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. All right, episode 31, Rush to Judgment. Here we are, past number 30. Yep, 31. And by the way, Justin, happy Purim. Oh, happy Purim to you. Is it happy Purim or is it good Purim? What do you say? I don't know. Is it? It's not. What's Hag Sameach for? I don't know. But for, all, for New Year? I don't know what any of that stuff is. <laughs> but we are not the greatest Jews. But for all our non-Jewish listeners, today is the Jewish holiday of Purim. I know oh, very yeah, little I was about right. it. Oh, no. You say Hag Purim Sameach. I was close. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. And all I know about Purim is that it's a happy holiday. It's one of the few happy holidays, right? In yeah, you Judaism? dress up in costume. Yeah. You, know, you usually like dress up as you know Esther or right. you know, Haman or... Hey, hey, you didn't get your thing out when I say Heyman. You got to say boo. Oh, hits. right. See, see, yeah. I don't remember any of that. And you eat humantashen. Yeah, which is it's actually it's named after Heyman's hat because it's triangle. He wore a right. triangle shaped hat. And what's the significance of it having a fruit filling? I've, I don't know. I don't know what yeah, that's about. No idea. Right. If any of the listeners know anything about Purim, please uh, email us and let us know. But uh, regardless of the fact that it is a sacred Jewish holiday, we have a lot to get to, don't we, Justin? <laughs> we certainly do. There it is. <laughs> All right. Honest Abe's kick it. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham. Abraham. All right, Justin. Just uh, remind our audience of how they can get some free ad space. We have a very cool program that we are running through the pandemic. You can, you know, whether it's your cousin or your company, your friend's company, you can tell us about it. Email us at downthemiddlepodcastusa at gmail.com or hit us up on our socials to get some information about ad space on our show. We're giving it away for free. Advertise for your friend's business, your business on our show, completely free of charge through the pandemic. Get your company into some moderation. Let's go. Try it on for size. It sounds like a good deal to me. If I were you, I'd be contacting us like immediately, if not sooner. That's true. Yeah. So um, next, we got some life stuff next week, and uh, we've been giving you guys a lot of episodes in a row here. Back to back to back. Some of you are probably behind, so you'll have a week to catch up. Uh, So we are taking next week off. Look, perhaps for an interview in the place of an episode. We're not, not going to guarantee that or anything, but it could be coming. Uh, we will be back, barring anything cataclysmic, of course, on Thursday, March 11th for episode 32. Mm-hmm. And that's all for Honest Abe. So, Justin, uh, I think we actually have our first ad this week, don't we? We certainly do. It's uh, a friend of both of ours, and uh, he's got a new movie out. So let's take a listen to the ad. Don't miss the new drama suspense film from Lionsgate Motion Picture Group, Adverse, starring Thomas Nicholas, Lou Diamond Phillips, Sean Astin, Penelope Ann Miller, and Mickey Rourke. Winner of multiple film festival awards, Adverse is a neo-noir tale of revenge set against the gritty backdrop of Los Angeles. Don't miss Thomas Nicholas flexing his dramatic muscles in his most compelling role to date. Adverse, directed by Brian A. Metcalf, out now in select theaters and available on streaming platforms everywhere, March 9th. 
You're listening to Down the Middle, a political podcast. Now, back to some intermittent, moderate change. Most podcast segments are akin to the middle seat on an airplane. You never wanted it, you just kind of got stuck with it. Well, if that's the case, then the following podcast segment is the window seat. And you've been upgraded to business class today, my friends. Fresh baked cookies and champagne all around. This is We Care A Lot. All right, uh, Justin got a question this week. Hey, hell hath frozen over. It certainly has. Yeah, <laughs> so the Eagles uh, got back together. Yeah, right. So uh, you usually read the questions because they're usually directed at me, but since this one's directed at you, I will read this one. Well, I'll enjoy it. I'll sit okay. back and enjoy it. So uh, this is from Podcast Lover Zero Zero One. How original. Okay, I know Justin has been itching for a question, so here it is. Rob is 100% correct. Now, I just have to stop to note, I love questions that start with a compliment yeah, to me. you do. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the way all these questions should, should start. Okay, here's the question. I know Justin has been itching for a question, so here it is. Rob is 100% correct about the state of conservatism today. I live in a very rural part of the country and was raised extremely conservative. Extremely is all caps. Uh, my, my dad made me read everything from John Locke to Milton Friedman. Very nice. nice. Yeah. Uh, the town I live in uh, uh, is as Trump-loving as you can get. Everyone has a MAGA hat. Everyone thinks Trump is the greatest president to ever live. And very few could tell you a single conservative or Republican principle outside of making liberals uncomfortable. <laughs> Rob is correct about Gina Carano and the fact that being a conservative in America today to the Trump Republicans, in quotations, uh, means saying inflammatory and or offensive things and then calling yourself a conservative. I asked my cousin the other day what he loves so much about Trump, and he said, quote, he made it acceptable to call liberals libtards, oh, end boy. quote. <laughs> nice. I am deeply concerned that the Republican Party and thus conservatism is uh, becoming almost exclusively about owning the libs and frankly being an unkind and unapologetic person and not about Judeo-Christian values or traditional principles like limited government. Most people under 40 who are calling themselves conservative have no idea what those things even mean. Justin, how do we fix this? I am increasingly finding myself feeling like I have no home in today's politics. Thanks in advance. Great question. Yeah, sounds like we got a bunch of uh, Uncle Earls going on. I'll tell you how to fix it. Stop electing (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. End of question. I don't even need to do anything. Exactly. Well, give me something uh, maybe a little bit more involved. Okay. Well, uh, podcast lover, thank you for your important question. This is actually the most important question in politics right now to me, and I know to a great many people. There are a large number of unknowns when considering how to fix this issue you've laid out here. But uh, it must be said, the idea that a large swath of people who engage in political talk on a social level are un or misinformed is no new thing. Rob and I used to talk, and I think we mentioned it on the show, about friends of ours that were fiscal conservatives and totally unaware of it until you cornered them and took them through a series of questions and then they emerged fiscal conservatives. So to answer your question more directly, what I personally would like to have happen is a return to a party of ideas and ideals and to focus on the discussions and debates that follow instead of arguing over voter fraud. It's why Rob and I started this podcast. This podcast is our literal answer to your question. I'm not sure how helpful or possible this is 
in this day and age, it seems as though we're living in sort of a perfect storm. The advent of, of te certain technologies and social media with the pandemic. So we're seeing less of, of one another. And of course, everything that's happened within the last you know, four or five years with the, the Trump administration, the numbers coming out of the Republican Party are stunning and they're not good. The latest of these numbers, which uh, I think the poll came out last week, uh, it has almost half of this poll, 46 percent, willing to abandon the current GOP and join a Trump-led party. Only 19% of this poll, taken by USA Today and Suffolk University, they polled 1,000 Trump voters, believes, like you and I, podcast lover, that the party should pull away from Trump. So one of two things happens from here. Either the party splits, and neither of those two parties win a presidency for who knows how long, or Trump and Trumpism completely takes over the Republican Party, and people like you and I lose our home. Yep. Because of what I outlined with future elections, I believe the latter of my guesses will be right. And I'm sure we'll get a whiff of that at CPAC over the weekend. The uh, point is, is I really don't have a good answer for you other than what I am currently doing, making my voice as loud and as educational as possible with this podcast, with the Republicans and Conservatives Club on Clubhouse, where I get to actually dialogue with leaders of the party, with Fox and own newscasters and challenge them, and with every person I meet. I'll continue to speak about ideas and ideals as loudly and respectively as I can, and I'll continue to vote for people who I believe will take us away from the Trump era of the GOP. But I don't have great hope that this will do the trick. Yeah. Even if all of us who believe this do the same, it seems to be a mere fraction of the GOP. So I apologize. I can't deliver a more positive message. Perhaps if our leaders in the Senate worked a bit smarter, we wouldn't have to face this problem as imminently as we do. But here we are. So I'm not sh I'm not sure I can say much more about it. Rob, I'm guessing you agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, in the... Um... In the spirit of being balanced, I would say that this is not just a problem on the right. Um, there is such a thing as liberal economic policies, traditional democratic economic policies, yeah. support for uh, union and uh, unionization and, and things mm -hmm. of that of that nature that I think have also been lost on the left. And I think there are a lot of just like there are a lot of Trumpers who are a lot of people on the right who who think being a conservative now is just about name calling and calling liberals yeah. libtards. I think there's a lot of people on the left that uh, think liberalism is just about social justice. You mm. know, that's it. Sure, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of this does, unfortunately, and I don't have an answer for this either, I think a lot of it starts at our education system. Mm -hmm. Are kids learning civics these days even? Right. Are they learning? Because, you know, when you learn about government and how government works, I would presume that that's when people would start taking an active interest in mm -hmm. politics, right? Um, and, it, you know, yes, people have become less and less interested in sort of the minutia of everyday politics, and it's more just about clubbing the other side over the head, right? Right. And a lot of it is, is, is about cultural issues now. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. yeah, how we get back to a return to talking about the issues that actually matter, that actually affect our lives, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for it either. Uh, I don't think, though, that it's just a right wing phenomenon. I think they're just people misinformed on both sides nowadays. Yeah. And like Justin said, it's really nothing new. I mean, this has been there's a lot of people who just never engaged in politics. Right. But yeah. what upsets me the most is that there since Trump came on the scene, there really you really can feel this sort of the sense that there is just an unkindness in the world right yes. now, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, you know, and I'm not saying it's a hundred percent at the hands of the right. I think both sides have a little bit of blame here, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think values, values are everything. Right. Justin? Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, like I said, 
you know, the pandemic and all of it's a perfect storm where everyone's hiding behind their computer shouting at each other. Right. And and uh, if we were face to face, that's why I like Clubhouse as an app. I think yeah. it humanizes you a little bit more because you're literally talking to the person, you know, exactly. you're not on video, but you're hearing each other. And that empathizes the situation a lot more than it does if you're just tweeting. Totally. It's very easy to hide behind your computer. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of like when you're in the car and someone cuts you off. You give them the yeah. finger because you have the protection of your car. Yeah, right. But, but nobody would over, do that in purpose. Yeah, if they pulled nobody. over, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. people people are actually active. I, I I bring this up all the time. Like if you go to, you ever want to get a gauge of how people actually behave in society, go to the airport. Now people yeah. aren't, People aren't dressed up anymore like they used to for the airport. Yeah, people look like they just rolled right out of bed. I'm always like, hey, put, take a shower or something. What's with the but, sweatpants? But outside of that, everyone is, you know, people are from all over the country, all over the mm-hmm. world, and everyone always seems pretty nice, right? Like, you yeah, don't, you really you don't, don't see, see a lot of fights, fights breaking yeah. out. Everyone's getting along, right, That's from true. all different places. I think mm-hmm. just, you know, there is a difference between the online world and the real world. Agreed. And we, especially in a pandemic like this, when we are so on our screens. It's all we have. Um, it's all we have, yeah. So it makes us feel more negative than things actually are. I will also say that later in this pod, uh, we are going to be discussing uh, Rush Limbaugh, which mm-hmm. is also sort of, I, I guess you could say, the start of a lot of these politics that we are in today. I think what the, I think the time period we're in right now is sort of the culmination of, of 30 plus years of Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. yeah so, but we will that. get to that. Moving on. Uh, thank you for the question, by the way. So last week we answered another listener question about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her mm-hmm. removal from committee assignments at the hands of the Democrats. Uh, after today, I hope we almost never have to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene again. Yeah, with that too. Uh, yeah. However, I wanted to circle back for a second uh, after giving some more thought to Justin's rebuttal uh, to my response. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Justin and I agreed last week that it is okay for members of Congress to have differences of opinion on policy, even if that means that the policy they support is wrongheaded or based on incomplete data or whatever. Like, for instance, Bernie Sanders is a big fan of socialism. Now, Justin and I firmly believe socialism is rooted in extremely uh, misguided philosophy that discounts thousands of years of what we know about human nature and what we know about government intervention into the economy and so on. But we wouldn't suggest that we remove Bernie from office or from committee assignments just because he supports and endorses bad policy. Correct. Uh, policy disagreements are indeed a healthy element of our governmental system. So mm-hmm. I drew a distinction, if you guys remember, uh, between policy disagreements, including policies we don't really like, such as BDS, yep. and the rhetoric of Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is not policy based, uh, but has you know been innately conspiratorial and even downright violent, right? So mm-hmm. Justin countered my argument by saying that we have Democratic Congress people like Ilhan Omar who are not only involved with unsavory and anti-Semitic people, but uh, you know openly lie or distort the facts about the history of Israel, for instance, in an effort to paint Israel in a negative light. So I was thinking about this a lot over the week and asking mm-hmm. myself a question of whether people who believe in alternate history, if you will, uh, alternate mm-hmm. history perspectives that right. aren't the perspectives of the mainstream historians, if they should or could be punished for that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I use the term punished loosely, uh, sure. you know, see consequences, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the answer I sort of came to was, was that history is very complex. And the further we move in time away from historic events of the past, the less people we have around us who were actually on the ground during those historic events. And therefore, the less we have firsthand accounts of those events. So uh, you take something like the 1619 Project, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning 
piece from Nicole Hannah-Jones, of course, uh, you know, which has been panned by conservatives all over the world as being a fictional alt-history account of the founding of the United States. So fictional, in fact, that the Trump administration countered the 1619 Project with the 1776 Commission, Mm -hmm. as we've discussed before. Now, I've read both pieces, and there are things I agree and disagree with about both, frankly. And my disagreements are also not based on firsthand experience, obviously. I wasn't there. But but (laughs) rather based on what I was taught and what I studied and to a certain extent, the information I sought out, because Mm -hmm. an aspect of human nature is that we all suffer confirmation bias. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, when when someone who we perceive as more knowledgeable than us tells us a story that agrees with our priors, we feel good about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think a lot of reason, a lot of the reason there is such heavy opposition to the 1619 project from the right is that it tells a different story that doesn't align with the story. A lot of people were told in their high school. Right. And we talked about this with Mark Cogman in episode 10, when we did our, our episode on, on uh, liberal indoctrination in colleges, right. A lot of this is is well i didn't learn it that way you know mm-hmm. and and people get upset when, when they have a preconceived notion of something so now you know now we have plenty of alt historians on the right as well i mean dinesh d'souza who is one of the most famous right-wing commentators and historians in the country mm-hmm. he has made a career out of alternative history and even making bizarre claims that john f kennedy was infatuated with hitler's leadership and that the modern day democratic party was the inspiration for national socialism in germany which there's no evidence behind uh he makes all kinds of crazy claims and even turns a lot of them into profitable movies. Uh, and and he talks to influential members of, of our government who retweet his thoughts. And, you know, it. the Matt Gateses of the world do it all the time. They, they mm-hmm. probably agree with a lot of his contentions. The point is that if we remove every person in Congress who believed or subscribed to a version of history that we believe to be counterfactual, there would be almost no members of Congress, mm-hmm. for one. And two, there is no system in place to determine really who is right and who is wrong. And that's just the nature of history. So in regard to Ilan Omar, yes, she has expressed and espoused factually incorrect things about the formation and history of the state of Israel. And yes, I do believe that to be dangerous to a certain extent because people listen to her and she's a sitting congressperson. And yes, it is true that the state of Israel has banned her from entering the country because of the historically incorrect ideas she's peddled. But I still see a distinction there between arguments over history and somebody who has openly stated on pu- on a public forum that 9-11 didn't happen or that the massacre at Sandy Hook was a false flag. There's just a difference there. And some of the difference is in the fact that those events, you know, 9-11 and Sandy Hook, for instance, took place recently. And we have documented evidence of those events, which, of course, makes Marjorie Taylor Greene's statements all the more insane. And that is not the same as two Congress people disagreeing with how the events of our founding unfolded or the details of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that goes back 70 years. So, you know, that is my answer, Justin, to why we shouldn't punish or we wouldn't punish Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib in the same way we would to MTG. Because I do think there is a there is a there are massive distinctions between the two and that it is not indeed a straight line apples to apples comparison. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I mean, I I respectively disagree just because Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, Israel's founding was the late 50s and we do have evidence of 
what was going on before then. And we actually outline it in, in, in our, I think it's episode 13 yeah. about Israel. And, and, you know, you're not talking about something that happened in the 1600s. You're talking about yeah. something that did happen in the 1950s, which is really all, it's not all that long ago. And, and, you know, my, my last point would be that technically the house Democrats did punish her for some anti-Semitic statements yeah. that she spoke when they approved an anti-Semitism resolution directly after they did it twice actually in response mm-hmm. to her remarks which to me shows that you know there there was an awareness of yeah. that what she was doing was wrong yeah you know we hear a lot these days people saying things like oh well that's not your that's not the truth or, or this is your my truth, truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 well mm-hmm. i'm just living my truth and the truth yeah. of the matter is that um Muslim people who come from that part of the world do live a different truth filled Mm -hmm. with tons of propaganda about Jews and Israel to begin with. And it is what they learned. Someone Mm -hmm. was telling me, I I attacked Rashida Tlaib, or I think it was Ilana Omar, actually, on Facebook years ago over something she said, some anti-Semitic thing. And one of my Jewish friends actually defended her and was like, well, you have to remember where she grew up in the time, you know, she was exposed to, uh, to uh, these kind of, this kind of propaganda. So you almost can't blame her. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really a good excuse to me, but I do, I do understand. Yeah, I get it. I completely understand as well. I just think like you're a Congresswoman. It's not an excuse. And to give like, the things that you're saying give someone like David Duke an opportunity to say, I agree with her. Like right. you don't want that as a yeah. congresswoman. That's yeah. not okay. I agree. Okay. So anyway, that buttons up that conversation. Thank if anyone you. has anything to add, let us know. Okay. So as per our usual arrangement, we've got some news to take you through. And as per our usual arrangement, we will attempt to give you a different kind of analysis than you're going to get from Don Lemon and Sean Hannity. So uh, this segment is called Turn on the News. Okay, so uh, this week featured three politicians who have some political problems on their hands. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's start with perhaps the most innocuous one. So, and, and I really, I, I really only wanted to put this in here because it nails home where the Republican Party is at the moment. So, uh, if you remember, last week we talked about Nikki Haley and her scathing statement uh, about Trump. If you need a reminder, this was in an interview she did with Politico. She said, "Quote." Uh, We need to acknowledge he let us down. He went down a path he shouldn't have and we shouldn't have followed him and uh, we shouldn't have listened to him. And we can't let that ever happen again. He's not going to run for federal office again. I don't think he's going to be in the picture. I don't think he can. He's fallen so far. Okay. now I have to believe that at the time that Nikki Haley made this statement, she was thinking that she was expressing a sentiment that was going to become mainstream thought among the majority of the GOP. Uh, You know, things move fast here. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, since she made those statements, however, uh, we have Lindsey Graham, like we played you last week, saying Trump plus is the way forward. Uh, We have various high level GOP members continuing to defend Trump and Trumpism. And uh, we even have uh, Mike Pence yesterday, Uh, Apparently, uh, the reporting was he's praising Trump, despite the fact that his supporters were chanting, hang Mike Pence less than two months ago. Uh, So it is 100 percent apparent to me that Nikki Haley had an uh oh moment (laughs) and uh, did everything she could to sort of subtly walk back her statements in Politico. 
And, uh, you know, what is every Republican's favorite way to pivot off this kind of stuff? It is to blame the media, of course, right? Because the media is, is the enemy of the people. So she, she writes an op-ed for Wall Street Journal uh, last week entitled, The Media Tries to Divide Republicans. Praising Trump's record and criticizing his conduct isn't having it both ways. It's simply common sense. So she's doing the whole, I just like his policies, not him routine, which a lot of people do, right? And she's, she's clearly doing this to course correct the statements she had made a week earlier. And I got to tell you, Justin, uh, she's good. She is good because I read the whole thing. and I'm like, man, super smart politician who delivers in this op-ed the most realistic and reasonable pro-Trump narrative that one could possibly muster at this point. Right. It's the only it's the only route you could take where you're like, "Eh." Okay. Right. And there's so much BS in it. And I'm going to break down just a little bit of it, but mm-hmm. it's delivered in a more measured and statesmanlike way than virtually any other Republican can do it. And that yep. is Nikki Haley's great skill. I mean, she's just Agreed. she's good at that. She's really yep. good at that. She's so, a great politician. Right. So first, let me break down sort of the crux of her op ed a little and poke a few holes, if you will. So she mm-hmm. says, quote, the liberal media wants to stoke a nonstop Republican civil war. The media playbook starts with the demand that everyone picks sides about Donald Trump, either love or hate everything about him. The moment anyone on the right offers the slightest criticism of the 45th president, the media goes berserk. Republicans are trying to have it both ways. It's a calculated strategy to pick conservatives against one another. Now, as all you know, I am no defender of the media. Neither is Justin. But uh, sorry, this makes it sound as if the media is manufacturing a divide. They don't have to do that. There is a divide. Yeah, I mean, the, accurate. yeah, the, the media is not stoking a civil war within the GOP by simply pointing out that it's happening. I mean, we have the clips of the divide. Mm-hmm. We have Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Ben Sass and Mitt yeah. Romney saying things that are directly contrary to what Lindsey Graham is saying. So. Well, how about the censures of last week? I right, mean, it, exactly. There's, there's plenty of evidence of The this. divide is, is right there for us to see. So I just point this out because this talking point irks me. The, the idea that simply by covering what Republicans are saying, the media is manufacturing a crisis that isn't there. Like, frankly... Whether or not the media is rooting for a civil war is irrelevant. And, and, yeah. and I, I happen to, to err on the side of that they are rooting for civil war on both sides. They've been going crazy about the Democratic divide for the last couple for, weeks, it's too. It's best for them. It'll, it's best for them. Ratings. Right, right. The media loves civil wars, right? Mm-hmm. But again, it's irrelevant. They're simply covering what Republican politicians are saying here. In other words, Nikki is saying that there would be no civil war if the liberal media just stopped covering what we were saying. You know, yeah, just no, stop it. Stop so it. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, it's actually Nikki Haley who tries to have it both ways in this in this very op-ed. So mm-hmm. she admits that no substantial voter fraud was found in this election. But then she says we need better security surrounding voting so that this doesn't she says so that this doesn't happen again. What doesn't happen again? You literally just said nothing <laughs> happened. So that right there is trying to have it both ways. Uh, here's another example of having it both ways. She says, quote, Mr. Trump brought millions of new voters into the Republican Party for which he deserves credit, but the party also lost millions of voters. So I'm like, um, isn't it a wash then? Like, he, he's equally a winner and a loser. Like, if he brought in millions but also lost millions and you're praising him and reprimanding him at the same time, isn't that kind of like having it both ways? Like, wouldn't you have rather he brought in new voters and kept the old ones as well? Um, but Nikki 
Haley has a skill of expressing something in a way that makes all of her arguments sound smart and reasonable. So I'm simply here to tell you that all her arguments are not sensible and not smart and reasonable. Now, lastly on Nikki Haley, she clearly wrote this op-ed to cover up what uh, she had said in in Politico interview. And this was ass covering mode for sure. Uh, But the most hilarious and telling part is that it didn't do anything. So according to the Washington Examiner, you know, no left wing publication, Trump turned down Nikki Haley's request for a -a Mar-a-Lago meeting. In other words, she tried to make amends by setting up a meeting and Trump said, Haley, she's dead to me. So, so, and, and, and this is the problem that, that we keep talking about, right, Justin? I mean, we we would normally applaud politicians for being down the middle, but one cannot be down the middle with, with Donald Trump. It's all or nothing. And the ones like Mitch McConnell and Nikki Haley trying to straddle the line uh, are being ousted from the party and left out in the cold. So the solution was never to double down on Trump. The solution was to band together and get rid of him. him Right. Mm -hmm. Don't be wishy-washy and do the whole, there are shades of gray kind of thing. You know, just say this, Donald Trump was bad for America. We need to rid his influence from the party. Simple as that, right? Mm -hmm. Liz Cheney has done that. Mitt Romney has done it many times. And if Mitch McConnell had done that and used the substantial power he wields to gin up more support for a conviction on impeachment, I would have a lot less to talk about in regard to this topic on this podcast. It would be over and done with, right? So the bottom line here is Nikki Haley has a serious political problem here. Uh, Apparently, her op-ed in the Wall Street Journal was not taken well by the right after her scathing comments about Trump. And uh, I personally think her political career may be over because of this. What do you think, Jay? Well, you know, the GOP has has been taken over by by Trumpers. I mean, honestly, like Mm -hmm. my response to Nikki is like, freaking duh, you thought he was going to meet with you? Same same with whatever McCarthy. Connell mm-hmm. thinks he's doing. Yeah. And, and the truth of the matter is like you and I know that these are bad moves. Mm-hmm. Why aren't these career politicians that have been doing this their entire lives? Why can't they figure it out? Yeah, I think they're thinking, uh, you know, Nikki Haley was making a calculated decision to say, you know, people are going to start to this Trump uh, enthusiasm is going to start to wane. And I want to be the person who at least could say on record that I called it out. Right. Um, You just can't do that with Trump. Like uh, we've talked about before. He just eats you up. He He is all or nothing. He desires complete allegiance and loyalty from his supporters and hangers Mm -hmm. on. Like this isn't a question. It's a fact. And, And the fact that they thought that they could like, you know, dangle their feet in the water without repercussions from him they yeah. they saw the same poll numbers that you and i have seen <laughs> I about the makeup of the gop like it's this is yeah. what is it what it is it, it's crazy so cpac is going on right now the conservative political action conference and apparently trump is the keynote speaker as you would can't expect really, um i think i think it's wait. actually happening tonight so in a couple of weeks i'm sure we will have some stuff to report uh but the reporting is that the preliminary reporting is that he is going to reclaim control of the gop claim that he is the the figurehead of the gop and uh, that he's going to be picking off anyone who didn't support him uh, during his presidency or after the insurrection or whatever. So something to look forward to. Good times, Justin. Can't wait. Yeah. Okay. So let's give a let's give a little left wing thing now. We we did the right. Let's do the left. So Andrew yeah. Cuomo, Emmy Award winning governor of New York, <laughs> the greatest go. governor to ever govern a single thing here or abroad or intergalactically, according yeah, to the according media. To, <laughs> right. And according to Andrew Cuomo. And according to Andrew Cuomo, he wrote a book, a New York Times bestseller. 
Andrew he, Cuomo. He, he wrote a book about the pandemic during, it came out during the pandemic. <laughs> I know, right? Not even over. How I stopped the pandemic during the height of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Andrew Cuomo has got a problem or two. So before Justin goes through the details of why Cuomo is likely a corrupt and lying politician, I want to say one thing about the media obsession with Cuomo during the height of the pandemic. Um, But if you remember, you know, they couldn't stop raving about the job Andrew Cuomo was doing. He just he's the Bill Gates of governing like they gave him a. Emmy Award, right? So nobody is more thorough and honest and forthright than Andrew Cuomo. You know, that was sort of the the the, the narrative for a while. Mm-hmm. And if we had on CNN in the morning, if you remember at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, we had to listen to an hour of Cuomo's press briefings, which Every day. featured him. And like at first he was in the white polo shirt and he he's kind of got like some definition in his arms. So he looks sort of tough and, you know, he's like muscular. And that was in the beginning. And after a month or two, he put on a suit again. So I, one of one of his advisors must have been like yeah maybe you should wear a suit for this one um and i like that i like that leather jacket it was nice yeah the leather jacket was okay yeah just just the raving and fawning over andrew cuomo for months right yeah and nobody had seen anything like this to get a little trumpy on you he he had a whole comedy sketch show on cnn with his brother it it was the yeah exactly yeah yeah well that's the other thing uh don't you think it's a conflict of interest when one of the premier anchors on CNN is the brother of the New yeah, York governor. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, yeah, and should be noted, I, you know, I, I like to call out when I'm consistent on something. It mm-hmm. should be noted that I was rolling my eyes at the Cuomo worship yes. the entire time, okay? You've never so really was, liked the guy. No, never. So was Bill de Blasio, apparently, who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, what, what a show that is. But yeah. the reason I was rolling my eyes is because, one, I was reading a lot of negative reporting about his COVID response that just wasn't being covered universally Mm -hmm. and two i don't know i I just never really liked the guy i I think he sort of comes off as an arrogant for lack lack of a better term but but and you know we were the three of us me justin and and editor-in-chief clay cogman were sort of texting about this and i know clay doesn't agree with it with with what i'm about to say here but i think it's true the media fawning over cuomo has nothing to do with the fact that he's a good liberal you know they fawn just as much over rudy giuliani after Mm 9-11 and cnn is credited with giving giuliani the moniker america's mayor and giuliani is, is is a as a Republican conservative mayor, right? So it has nothing to do, you know, I think the right wants to make the Cuomo worship from the press about the fact that they cover up for liberals, you know, their extension of the Democratic Party. It's not that. Here's the real reason, okay? The media has a New York thing and literally always has. And right. my, You've my said mother, this on here. I've said this before, my mother loves when I mention her on the show, so I'll mention her here now. It's her favorite part of the show. Okay. Well, now there, I got to mention my mom because she gets yes. upset when you mention your mom and then I don't mention my mom. She's go. like, where's yeah. my shout out? So hi, mom. Yeah. Jewish moms. Jewish moms. Yeah. So um, there are people like my mother who believe that New York is literally the center of the universe, that everyone yeah. in New York is inherently smarter than anyone else in the world simply by virtue of the fact that they're from New York and that mm-hmm. really anyone who isn't from New York couldn't possibly understand this. It's called New York elitism. It is. It has existed for a long time. The press is an example of the sort of pinnacle of New York elitism. Most of them are from there. Most of them are headquartered there. And they have an absolute bias when it comes to New York politi- politicians. They treat them with kid gloves because yeah. everything in New York is the is the, best. the biggest yeah. and the best. And the citizens yeah. of best New York bagels, are the smartest. The best coffee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Right, and and I will admit, you know, I was born and raised in New York. I have a little bit of New York elitism. I, you know, Frank, most it of it bagels. revolves around food. Most of it revolves yeah, around right. food. Well, I yeah. just like the fact that when I get a sandwich at a deli in New York, it's in my hand in under two <laughs> minutes, whereas in L.A. It could take 16 minutes. Like, what the hell are you doing that back there? Do you not know how to make it? But what are they doing in New York that just makes everything faster? There's less you know? sun. There's sunning here. <laughs> well, is, to me, my impre- every time I go visit New York, everyone just seems to be working harder. Than in yeah. any other place. So Let's the guys at the deli are like really hustling. Where yeah. like the guys at the deli here are just like high school kids who don't give a crap. Yeah. You know, so it's a different thing. You know, of course, they're going to, by virtue of the fact that New York is the biggest and the best, they're going to elect the best politicians, of course, according to the media. So mm-hmm. not so fast. Justin, tell us a little about the storm that surrounds Andrew Cuomo. So this is some real bad news happening here. The uh, Emmy Award winning, as Rob said, governor of New York, (laughs) Mr. Andrew Cuomo, who wrote a book, as we said, on managing the COVID-19 crisis, has now come (laughs) under severe scrutiny as reports were released that he kept nursing home data under wraps for months, despite requests from lawmakers showing that thousands more nursing home residents died of COVID-19 than the state's official tallies had previously acknowledged. These numbers showed that nearly 15,000 long-term care residents died of the disease as opposed to the previously disclosed 8,500. This new toll comes out to about one-seventh of the roughly 90,000 people living in nursing homes as of 2019 in New York, which is at the top of the list of the most care home residents in the country. Now, Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, admitted in a call with state lawmakers that the administration tried to delay the release of the date as they were wary of a federal Justice Department preliminary inquiry. Reportedly causing these nursing home outbreaks was a March 25th policy that attempted to create more space in hospitals by releasing recovering COVID-19 patients into nursing homes, a policy implemented by Cuomo. Uh, This is detailed in a report by New York AG Letitia James, saying that those admissions may have contributed to increased risk of nursing home resident infection and subsequent fatalities noting that at least 4,000 nursing home residents with COVID-19 died after that guidance. The policy was reversed in May. And uh, the other day, Cuomo held a nearly two-hour press conference taking responsibility for not providing the data upon request from lawmakers who are now considering repealing the governor's emergency powers. Now, we'll get back to it, but as if this wasn't enough, a few days ago, a former aide to Governor Cuomo, Lindsey Boylan, who's currently running for Manhattan Borough President, I have no idea what that means, by the way, said uh, publicly that the governor kissed her without consent at his office in Manhattan and then asked her to play a game of strip poker. She wrote, quote, we were in his New York office on Third Avenue. As I got up to leave and walked toward an open door, he stepped in front of me and kissed me on the lips. I was in shock, but I kept walking. So, uh, you know, I know yeah. I'm sure we'll get to both things, but let's talk about the nursing home cover up, Rob. What else you got for us? Well, you know, here's what I would say. I would say that, first of all, the, you know, you know, the expression, the cover up is worse than the crime. Yeah. Um, this is one of those examples where I think the crime and the cover up are really bad. Yeah, both. Absolutely. Yeah. So so in addition to that, Ron Kim, who is a Democratic New York assemblyman. Uh, accused Cuomo of bullying him to participate in this cover-up. Now, we have a clip of this, and uh, keep in mind that Ron Kim is not a Republican. He's a Democratic lawmaker from the state of New York who really doesn't have any political incentive to lie about Andrew Cuomo, at least as far as I could tell. So uh, uh, first, uh, this is the story that Ron Kim told to Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC. I think what's happening here is when we get closer to the truth behind the growing nursing home scandal in New York, Governor Cuomo tries to implicate you in the cover-up or threatens your livelihood if you don't lie for him. 
And that's what happened to me in the last one week. I was one of six lawmakers in that private meeting for two hours with Secretary DeRosa when she accidentally told us the truth, that there was a cover-up and fear that the information would be weaponized against Governor Cuomo. That moment, I had to tell the truth, and I had to let the public know what happened. And Governor Cuomo called me the the next day at 8 p.m. while I was about to bathe my kids. I was with my wife, and for 10 minutes, uh, he berated me. uh, He yelled at me. uh, He told me that, you know, my career would be over. He's been biting his tongue for months against me. And I had tonight, not tomorrow, tonight, to issue a new statement, essentially asking me to lie um, and asking me, like, I, I just, I heard and I saw a crime the other day. And he's asking me that I did not see that crime. And, and that was the line that he, you know, a, a line that he crossed that, that, that can't be undone. And, and that's why I had no choice uh, but to come out and, and speak up, you know, as the chair of the Asian Committee in the state assembly, it's my job to investigate. It's my job to ask these tough questions, and I shouldn't be punished for doing my job. So uh, that's pretty damning, uh, of course. So then, um, as if that wasn't bad enough, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, one of the country's worst mayors for a host of other (laughs) issues, um, was asked if he thinks Ron Kim's uh, story is credible. Here's what de Blasio had to say about that. Yeah, it's a sad thing to say, Mika, but that's classic Andrew Cuomo. Um, A lot of people in New York State have received those phone calls. Uh, You know, the bullying is nothing new. Um, I believe Ron Kim, and it's very, very sad. No public servant, no person who's uh, telling the truth should be treated that way. Um, but yeah, that, the, the threats, the, the belittling, uh, the demand that someone change their statement right that moment. Uh, many, many times I've heard that, and I know a lot of other people in this state have heard that. So uh, let's face it. Uh, it doesn't sound like Andrew Cuomo is the greatest guy. Right? which isn't surprising to me. Um, so we'll keep you guys updated on this story, but I think Cuomo is in serious trouble here. It sounds like high-level corruption and likely removal from office if he's convicted, uh, as if things couldn't get worse you know, with Cuomo. Uh, as Justin mentioned, uh, that, that story dropped yesterday uh, from Lindsey Boylan. Uh, the story was titled, my, my, my Story of Working with, uh, with Governor Cuomo. I'll read a different quote that, that, that I pulled, that Justin didn't pull. The piece says, uh, it, it goes on to say, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo has created a culture within his administration where sexual harassment and bullying is so pervasive that it is not only condoned, but expected. His inappropriate behavior towards women was an affirmation that he liked you, that he mu- that you must be doing something right. He used intimidation to silence his critics. And if you dared to speak up, you would face consequences. So, uh, yeah, sounds like Cuomo has got a lot on the old plate there, Dustin. Yeah, when it rains, it pours. It does. It does. And it's pouring in New York, which it does a lot. Moving on, we are not done yet. There's another prominent politician who has some problems to deal with. It's all about problems, this segment. So we're going to give you guys a segment within a segment here. We bring this bit back whenever it's appropriate. And boy, is it appropriate for this one. This segment is called Bonehead of the Week. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the Bonehead of the Week Award on episode 31 of the Down the Middle podcast goes to Republican Senator of Texas, Raphael Edward, a.k.a. Ted Cruz. Let's tell him what he's won, Johnny. 
Ted gets the Bonehead of the Week award this week for being perhaps the most tone-deaf politician in all of Washington, D.C. So while his state of Texas was going through a -a once-in-a-generation deep freeze causing the entire power grid to collapse and leaving millions of citizens without power, heat, and water, Ted and his family decided it would be a good time to take a vacation. How about someplace warm? So Ted booked a last-minute standby ticket, just missing the business upgrade, by the way, and boarded a flight with his fam to Cancun, Mexico. Unfortunately for Ted, we got pictures of him standing in the airport about to board his flight. Now, when he realized that the pictures were being published by the press and that was about to hit the fan, he suddenly came to the conclusion that he had made a horrible mistake. So he caught the first flight back to Texas the moment he landed in Mexico. But in true Ted Cruz fashion, never missing an opportunity to be a complete dipshit, he threw his own daughters under the bus and blamed the whole ordeal on his desire to be a good dad. See, Ted was just going to Cancun to drop his daughters off. I guess that's why he needed an overnight bag that would make the Prince of Zamunda blush. Now, (laughs) when Ted got back home, he started his apology tour, of course. He admitted it wasn't the best thing he's ever done. He even said that he started having second thoughts the second he sat down on the plane. But in another opportunity to avoid being a callous a few days later, Ted blamed media criticism of his Cancun trip on Trump withdrawal, saying, quote, The media is suffering from acute Trump withdrawal, where for four years every day they could foam at the mouth and be obsessed with Donald Trump, and now that he's receded from their day-to-day storyline, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know what to do, so they obsessed over my taking my girls to the beach. Well, don't you worry, Senator Cruz. I can personally guarantee you that nobody in the world is obsessed with you. Enjoy your Bonehead of the Week award, and I'm sure we'll see you back here in short order. Good night, folks. Okay, so uh, outside of the obvious political nightmare for Ted Cruz and some of the excuse making I've heard from conservative commentators, by the way, sidebar, I got to read you the best one because this is from one of my personal favorites. I mentioned in the top of the show, Dinesh Dinesh D'Souza, Uh, just the worst of the worst, the worst, right? He says, quote, what could Ted Cruz do? If he were here in Texas, I'm hard pressed to say if he, if he, if he's in Cancun, that means he's not using up valuable resources of energy, food and water that can now be used for someone else. Right. This, this is probably, he's, he goes on to say, this is probably the best thing he could do for the state right now. Right. Oh, get out! Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So it would just be better if all everyone is, was not well, taking up I mean, resources. Ted Cruz specifically, because he's so freaking inept. And yes, the best thing Ted Cruz could do is get out of the way. Right. But like, are you telling ridiculous. us that we're supposed to take you seriously, Dinesh? Like, yeah. some of these guys have so little shame that they'll actually say things like that with a straight face. It's amazing. To oh me, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, but I want to uh, I want to talk a little about the debate that this whole disaster in Texas sparked because mm-hmm. we've been having now that we've had our fun with Ted, we've been having a debate over energy and fossil fuels versus renewables yeah. for decades, right? But the state mm-hmm. of Texas is an interesting case study because Texas is the only state in the contiguous U.S. that operates its own electric grid. Yeah, they're off the grid. Right. So the original narrative uh, that the right was pitching for why the power grid failed in Texas was too much wind power and the wind t- turbines froze or something. Yeah. I, yeah. Did you see the picture that got posted from like 2015 in Alaska? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> now, this is insane, folks, for many reasons, but mainly because Texas only gets about 10% of its power from wind. So Correct. then the narrative shifted to, well, if we had those environmentalists come in and do what they've wanted to do all to the state all these years, we would have had more wind power and thus a bigger problem on our hands. So there's a really good piece over at CNN by a guy named James Moore, uh, who's a Texan. Uh, that outlines uh, what's really going on in Texas. And I wanted to discuss this because I think it expounds upon some of the stuff I talked about in my rant uh, several weeks ago entitled How to Destroy Governmental Progress in Three Easy Steps. And, and so Moore says, quote, uh, Texas's attitude towards government has become deadly. Texas fancied itself as independent from the rest of the union. So it built an electric grid all of its own. The entire purpose seemed to be avoiding federal regulation and keeping energy cheap. Washington would have no say about what we Texans did regarding fuel prices and service delivery, nor would we stoop to buying or borrowing power from the rest of the country. Now, the real reason, of course, was profits for energy companies. Supply and demand are easier to manipulate when there are no federal laws protecting consumers and the grid. The energy industry was able to ignore warnings about winterizing its natural gas, coal, and oil power infrastructure. We're Texas. We don't have those problems until we do, which is just another manifestation of anti-government, fossil fuel-fixated conservative conservatism that denies climate change. He goes on to say that uh, uh, Governor Greg Abbott lied about how frozen, uh, frozen windmills uh, caused the failure. It's also worth noting that Abbott blamed the Green New Deal, which doesn't even exist uh, presently. And Rick mm-hmm. Perry, who is Abbott's predecessor, suggested that Texans would rather suffer days of blackouts than submit to Washington's oversight. So this is another one of those very nuanced conversations, and we are planning a topic of the day in the near future where we're going to go do a deep dive into energy and fossil fuels versus renewables and fracking. And we'll yeah, because it's not so simple. It'll probably be another two or three part series, right? Right. Mm -hmm. We'll go through some of the details outlined in the so-called Green New Deal and all that stuff. But um, my opinion from the research I've done. Justin, Mm -hmm. is that the disaster we saw in Texas last week was a direct result of under-regulation. So we've talked on the show about the dangers of over-regulation, but we haven't talked much about the flip side of that. So Mm -hmm. it's certainly something we should come back to. Do you have any thoughts on it, preliminary? Look, everything in moderation. You know, there there are good things. There are such things as states' rights, and there's such thing as as federalism, and somewhere in the middle is where these two should meet, and that was the the original design of the Constitution. So, I mean, what you're referencing in the article is a 2011 Federal Energy Regulatory Regulatory Commission report that was 357 pages, all about how the winterization of power infrastructure was necessary in Texas. They completely ignored it. They had the information. They didn't move forward with the project because it was expensive, and, and they're suffering now for it. And so I think there's balance here, and I'm excited to get into this conversation because it is quite new one. Yep. Great. So we'll, we will come back to that one. Okay. So uh, now that we've gone through all the various reasons politicians are bad people, uh, <laughs> let's move on to the Biden administration a little here. Now, the, the big event this past week has been the hearing for Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland. Now, if you guys remember... Garland was snubbed a Supreme Court seat in 2016 by cocaine Mitch McConnell, a.k.a. Mitch McChina, a.k.a. Mitch the b- But Biden nominated him for attorney general, obviously one of the most important positions in government. Justin, tell us how things went down at the hearing, if you could. So uh, Merrick Garland, as you said, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. 
and he spent time addressing concerns over prosecutorial cannabis concerns, pledging to deprioritize low-level crimes, as his predecessor did, checks and balances, pledging to keep the Justice Department distanced from the White House, and now famously saying, quote, I am not the president's lawyer. Uh, the insurrection investigation, which he seeks to continue, the death penalty, which he has concerns with, defunding the police, which he is against, immigration and border crossings, which he sidestepped, voting rights, which he hopes to see strengthened, and gun control, which he believes there is room for. Uh, the, the long and short of it is, though, it, it seems as though Garland is headed for smooth bipartisan confirmation, including right. your buddy Cocaine Mitch, mm -hmm. with a committee vote set for March 1st and final confirmation vote the following week. Excellent. Okay. Now, you know, I'm going to take some heat here from the left, but one of the things I will say about Merrick Garland is that he ain't the most prolific speaker, is he? Did you watch any of this? I did see it. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it, he went to high school, right? It, you know, it doesn't mean he's not brilliant. I mean, I, you no. know, I worked in the legal industry and, and met lots of lawyers who were just bad speakers. You'd expect lawyers to be be well-spoken and, and, and right. good at getting their point across. It's, it's literally their job. Right, right. And I'm sure he's smarter than I am in the, in the mm -hmm. end. But, but, but he gave one response to a question posed by the execrable Josh Hawley. They talk about the immigration question. Republican senator yeah, from Missouri. Right. His response was insane. Right. I thought it was worthy of note because it was so ridiculous and such mumbling, bumbling word salad <laughs> that I was, I was a little bit shocked, frankly. So yeah. let me play you the question, the answer, and then tell you what the answer should have been because I think it was a relatively easy question. And I also think it's indicative, the, the fact that he struggled with this question is indicative of where our politics is right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll get into that in a minute. Senator Hawley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Judge Garland, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the law enforcement challenges at the border, which I know a number of other members have brought up with you. Just a, a fundamental question. Do you believe that illegal entry at America's border should remain a crime? Well, I haven't thought about uh, that question. Uh, uh, I just haven't thought about that question. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the president has... Uh, made clear that we are a country of, uh, with the borders and with the concern about national security. Um, I don't know of a proposal to uh, decriminalize but still make it uh, unlawful to enter. I just don't know the answer to that question. I haven't thought about it. Um, I haven't thought about it is real, real bad. What the devil? So, so the question was, uh, do you believe illegal entry at America's borders should remain a crime? Now, I would have answered this in a much more snide and condescending way, because that's just yeah. my, my, my personality. I would have said, well, Senator Hawley, you just said the word illegal. So if something is illegal, that would make it a crime, right? Yeah. Uh, the answer, of course, is absolutely. Crossing the border illegally is a crime, hence why they call it illegally crossing, right? <laughs> it should remain a crime because it is a crime. Now, he could have gone on to say, you know, Senator Hawley, if you want to have a discussion about the positives and negatives that come along with illegal immigration, because it's not all negative like you guys are always painting, I'm game to have that conversation, but it's a nuanced conversation. And the reason I'm even making this a thing is because politics has become so tribal and so much about optics yeah. that Merrick Garland, who is supposed to be a moderate, who is at a hearing to be the head law enforcement officer of the country, cannot answer a direct and simple question because, frankly, he knows where his bread is buttered and he doesn't want to piss off the far left. Mm -hmm. And if, if there's one thing that this show down the middle could achieve, it would be breaking down this kind of nonsense because I just don't think it should be controversial at all to say that illegally crossing a sovereign country's border should be continued to be illegal 
Well, I tell you what, it shouldn't be politically driven and he shouldn't be scared. I mean, he needs to have a backbone. He shouldn't be scared to say it in a, right. a confirmation hearing. Right. It was clearly a political thing that he didn't want to, a line he didn't want to cross. And, yeah. you know, say, just saying, well, we're a sovereign nation and, yeah, crossing illegally is indeed illegal. It's and, a crime, until right? It's, until it's not made illegal, <laughs> right. it is illegal it's and illegal. therefore a crime. Right. And, and frankly, I don't even think it's controversial to say it should stay illegal. It's no, a, we're a, so- a sovereign isn't. nation. I mean, I wh- why would we... We can't just let people just cross anytime they want. Now, that's very different from saying we should kick out every illegal immigrant currently residing mm-hmm. in the country. That's a whole different conversation. Correct. I understand how that is a more nuanced conversation. But saying that illegal immigration is indeed illegal should not be controversial in the slightest. And it, and it is only because of the highly partisan political time period that we're currently in. And, you know, that, that 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 would even be a hard question to answer. So you you ask this question in 1988, 99% of Americans would say, yes, illegal immigration is indeed illegal. I mean, it's in the title. That's it. Right. It, exactly. So it, the point is, we we are caught up in controversies now. Things become controversial. That don't have to for, be. That, that are, are completely nonsensical. I mean, yeah. I don't see anything wrong with no, saying we are a sovereign nation and it's you innocuous. shouldn't yeah. right completely it's how innocuous. we're designed right, right. so anyway uh justin uh you got any info uh to update us on in regard to the covid relief bill i sure do so we're getting close and things are heating up in relation to this covid relief bill the bill heads for a possible vote as early as friday and the issue out front of course is the 15 dollars an hour federal minimum wage hike this proposal is dividing even democratic senators with Mansion and cinema so far sitting across the aisle on the issue, but this is also a procedural issue. So the Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough is expected to weigh in whether the chamber's rules would permit the increase. This, of course, has to do with the rules on reconciliation and what proposals can be approved under this special procedure necessary to force the simple majority vote that w- that would allow for this passage. So additionally, two funding projects are in the sights of Republicans are seeming to focus on. A $100 million rapid transit project in the Bay Area, home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and a $1.5 million, which is not a lot of money in sort of con- congressional terms, that would be spent on the Seaway International Bridge of the St. Lawrence River between Canada and upstate New York, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's home state. The bill stands right in the middle of the paper-thin mar- margins the Democrats hold in the Senate, and we'll have to keep an eye on this as it begins the treacherous journey through reconciliatory congressional passage. Yeah, I heard tonight, actually, just before I was looking at the breaking news, just before we started recording um, yeah, tonight, is Thursday, I think they officially decided that the minimum wage thing wouldn't be in there, which is. Yeah, I think I that think was good. expected. Biden was yeah. definitely expecting that. I think Congress is, was expecting that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the hike was was it was in the bill. It was out of the bill for this exact reason. So I don't think right. it comes as a surprise to anyone. And it's going to make Republicans very happy, and it's going to make Democrats a little bit more aligned on on the yeah. bill in general. I agree with you. I agree with you. Although this, we really need to do a full topic of the day on minimum wage because this mm-hmm. is becoming such a hot button issue right now. I and I see a lot of Democrat uh, Democratic commentators, I would say, or liberal commentators, mm-hmm. um, really supporting and pushing for for the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Um, and I really want to do a deep dive into it because I think. Uh, it's one of those things that sounds good on paper, but could have very negative it's, repercussions. It, it could be very bad for small business. And I right. think the people need to be more informed on this because, again, the commentators aren't giving the full picture. 
Right, I'm wishy-washy on minimum wage to begin with for yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons that we'll get mm-hmm. to when we when we eventually do that topic. So that's something yeah. to look out for. So thank you, yes. Justin, for that info. Moving on, I want to talk about the Biden administration's COVID messaging mm-hmm. and a problem I'm having specifically with Anthony Fauci. Now, I'll probably take some heat for this from the left, uh, but I don't care because I have been a defender of Fauci from the very beginning. In fact, yeah. I included his negative experience working in the Trump administration in one of my rants recently because I think he has been very fairly maligned by the right. I think uh, you know he gets painted as a villain simply for giving the best scientific evidence he could give at the mo- at that moment in time. It's a very complicated situation with a new virus, you know. He's, he's had to backtrack some things. I think he's done the best he can, right? And and I've been very consistent in praising the work he's done and in defending him against right-wing attacks. But in the last few weeks, his messaging has been off and counterproductive, in my opinion, and even bordering, and this is just my opinion, bordering on possibly destructive. And I'll explain my reasoning behind this. But first, this is what he had to say when asked the question on CNN, if we'd still be wearing masks in 2022. Mind you, it's only February of 2021 right now as we speak. Fauci, go. You and the president have suggested that we'll approach normality toward the end of the year. What does normal mean? Do you think Americans will still be wearing masks, for example, in 2022? You know, I think it is possible that that's the case, you know, because it depends on the low on the level of 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 dynamics of virus that's in the community. And that's really important because that gets back to something again that you said, if you see the level coming down really, really very low, I want it to keep going down to a baseline that's so low that there's virtually no threat or not. No, it'll never be zero, but a minimal, minimal threat that you will be exposed to someone who is infected. So if you combine getting most of the people in the country vaccinated with getting the level of of virus in the community very, very low, then I believe you're going to be able to say, you know, for the most part, we don't necessarily have to wear masks. But if we have a level of virus that is at that level that it was months and months ago, like 20,000 per day is a heck of a lot better than what it's been, but that's still very high level of virus in the mm. community. I want to see it go way down. When it goes way down and the overwhelming majority of the people in the population are vaccinated, then I would feel comfortable in saying, you know, we need to pull back on the masks. We don't need to have masks. Wow. Now, uh, I'm sorry, and I know some of you will disagree, but this is very bad messaging. I, I don't want our public officials to sugarcoat the issue or lie to me like Trump did. They, you know, it will disappear. It's going away very strongly. Yeah. Nothing has ever gone away this quickly, including that one time I had gonorrhea. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't want that, but we are on a mission here, and the mission is to get back to normal life. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the vaccine for a minute, because the vaccines are, according to the data, a miracle okay. of modern mm-hmm. medicine. The Amen. overall effective rate of the vaccine that we have combined so far is between 94 and 96 percent. It's a more. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that is a more effective vaccine than mumps, measles, rubella. Right. Further, 
studies in Israel are showing that you cannot pass the virus once you get the vaccine, which makes sense to me because if the vaccine is preventing one from getting the virus, how could they then spread the virus if they yeah. don't have it? If so there's no viral there, load, then it ain't going anywhere. It, exactly. There is zero evidence, look it up yourselves, that COVID-19 can still be passed once somebody has a vaccine and is immune. Uh, there was talk that the virus could still live in the nose or something. The latest medical updates are that getting the vaccine prevents one from getting the virus and thus prevents one from spreading the virus. So there's this large study in Israel that shows 95% effectiveness of eliminating the virus and 100% in eliminating deaths from the virus. And that's really important. So in other words, the 5% of people who could still be susceptible to the disease, don't die from it. It's just like having, yeah, they have a mild case or like cold symptoms or whatever. So, okay, this is the cure. This is a cure, right? Mm -hmm. And we've been living like this for a damn year. And I'm not being rebellious here when I say that once I get this vaccine, both doses or whatever, and once I wait the required 12 days or whatever it is, you know, for the protection to fully kick in, I'm done. I am done. I'm doing whatever the hell I want. I'm no longer going to give a crap about masks or social distancing. Think about what we've been through. I'm not going to do any of that, right? We've had enough. And so, but here's why Fauci's messaging here is so damaging. There is still a tremendous amount of vaccine hesitancy out there. And that actually can impede the progress here. Um, so the selling point for getting the vaccine, if you're a sale, pretend you're a sale, put your salesman hat on, Justin. Okay. okay. The way to get people into the idea of getting the vaccine is to guarantee them that life is going to go back to normal. Yeah. Not a new normal, not kind of normal, but normal. 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 Because, yeah. Right. Because if I'm 20 years old and healthy and I know via the CDC data that the seasonal flu is actually more deadly for me than COVID. And I'm hearing Anthony Fauci tell me that I might still be wearing a mask a year from now. Why the hell would I get the vaccine? There's no incentive for me. Why risk a negative reaction, uh, you know, even to the vaccine, even if it's only a day or two? I don't need it. Uh, You know, Fauci's telling me I'm going to have to wear a mask for a year anyway. The entire selling point is that we are going we are going to go back to normal. So Israel, which typically destroys the U.S. in terms of government policy, Uh, has what they're calling COVID green passports. Basically, if you want to go to a restaurant, you'll like this, Justin. If you want to go to a restaurant, a nightclub, a movie theater, get on a plane, you have to show your COVID green passport. Now, the selling point is getting the vaccine so that you're going to be able to do the things you did before the pandemic without having to worry. So Mm -hmm. there was an article about this in the Jerusalem Post that I was reading. 23-year-old Eitan Klein I have a feeling he's Jewish. Uh, says, Everyone in Israel's got like, they only have four names in Israel, and one of them is Eitan. Eitan, right, of course. He says, quote, I live in Tel Aviv, the nightclub capital of the world. For, for one whole year, I haven't been able to go out with my friends or do any of the things I love to do. Getting vaccinated means I can go back to the way life was before the storm. I am so excited about it that I can barely sleep. Okay, 
this is what good policy looks like. Mm -hmm. Get people excited about this thing. Yes, and get the vaccine. Right. And the way you do that is by telling them the truth, which is that the vaccine is, which is, you know, it's 95% effective. effective. Mm -hmm. Right. It's going to bring us back to normal. Saying that we might be wearing masks still a year from now is unbelievably reckless to me. No one wants to hear that. And it's going to prevent people from getting the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. I know, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, with things like this, you want to undersell and then have people be pleasantly surprised when things go back to normal. But this is not the time for that kind of reasoning. You know, Mm -hmm. the way we get out of this is by having the majority of American citizens excited to take this thing. So, Justin, how do you feel about it? So I'm sure you agree. I, I do agree with you, although I have something else to consider. And that okay. and that's basically I don't think Fauci should be messaging what what you are saying. I think that should be the president. The president should mm-hmm. be out there yeah. campaigning and getting people excited. Fauci should be I don't know that he should be messaging this publicly at all. His information should be going to the president. The president should be messaging what he wants to, in totality to be happening with the American people. I'm not yeah. a Fauci apologist, but. Fauci said something very early on in the pandemic, and I think a lot of people missed it, and I found it very interesting. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, his ego was a bit smaller back then, and Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that he is only one piece of the advisement as it relates to COVID-19. He advises the administration, and along with the other advisors, economists, financial advisors, behavioral advisors, whomever else, and that the information he gives is specifically having to do with the medical piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. He doesn't speak on reopening in terms of the economy because he's not an economist. His advice will be related to medical only, and the president has to weigh that accordingly with everything else and then message on the entire picture. And right. I think that's what needs to happen here. I think there's a danger with him speaking directly to the American people in certain areas because he's only talking about one piece of the puzzle. Right. So you're saying that you're agreeing with me that the messaging is bad, but you're saying yes. that the messaging should be coming from from a different person. Anyway. The messaging you're right. talking about and that excitement needs to come from the president because he needs to be considering Fauci should be saying what he's saying. He's right. a medical advisor. He's going to play it safe. Yep. He's going to talk about the, the, the practices in relationship to his best knowledge in terms right. of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. what you're talking about is something else entirely. And, yeah, sure it, right. the, and the president needs to message that accordingly. And I don't think Fauci should be out there talking about this. I think it's bad. Yeah, maybe you're right. You know, maybe even just the question, that question posed to Fauci is inappropriate, considering mm-hmm. he really shouldn't be talking about policy. No. Um, yeah, but I'll tell you one thing. If I'm still wearing a mask in a year, I'm going to be mighty pissed off because we've been going through hell over here. It's going to be three tell. masks by then. It's already it's two already. How many of you have it? Raise your hand if you've spent an entire year inside with an eight and a six-year-old and tried to get them through school every day. seven days a week no breaks (laughs) raise your hand if you've gone through that and then tell me you don't want to go back to normal yeah my kids have not been in school for a year and it is worth noting that we're coming i think we're at the year anniversary it was around this time one year ago that we first started hearing about this and it became a real big thing i if you would have told me then that my kids wouldn't be in a classroom for a year, oh, never, yeah, never ne- I would it. never believed it. I mean, we were still planning our vacation at that point. And I was right. like, ah, this will blow over in a couple weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just insane. Okay. So anyway, that's how I feel about it. Uh, moving on. Last thing before we move on to, uh, to our, another segment, uh, we had to revisit the Disney versus Gina Carano thing that we discussed last week because my entire narrative on the situation centered around the idea that I wasn't sure Gina Carano was even a conservative and that I 
have been growing more and more concerned about the idea that the right, in its ever-growing quest to make headway in the culture war, is treading a dangerous path uh, whereby they are inviting people into the conservative movement who don't actually believe in any conservative principles. Our, our listener at the front of the show picked up on this. You know, but they're, they're rather just perceived victims of silencing or censorship or whatever, right? right. I made the case that while I supported Gina Carano's right to say any of the things she was saying that led to her eventual termination, the things she was saying were indeed rooted in misinformation and therefore do not preclude her from any and all consequences that could exist in the real world for disseminating misinformation. Now, my concern was that the right sort of collectively was labeling anyone with a fringe or dissenting opinion from mainstream thought as conservative. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is a slippery slope, and I think Justin would agree, when you consider the fact that people believe in all sorts of crazy Right. I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of people believe crazy stuff. Right. And Mm -hmm. we can't we don't want to get into a, a, you know, we don't want to get into I don't think the right wants to get into a habit where any time someone dissents from from regular, regular opinions or normal opinions, they're conservative. I don't want to conflate conspiracy theorists with conservative. That sounds pretty dangerous to me. That's exactly the, the perfect way to put it. So now my suspicions were officially confirmed this week when Gina Carano sat down for her first interview. Mm-hmm. Post being fired from Disney uh, with Ben Shapiro, who promptly, you know, of course, hired her, as we talked about last week, and made her, frankly, a conservative household name. I think she's more popular now than ever. I, I, I'll be honest, I had no idea who Gina Carano was. Right. Uh, you know, and I have kids, but we never watched The Mandalorian. I didn't know who she was. Now everyone who's who's in the on the right knows who she is. Absolutely. So you know, it's been good for her. Now in the interview, all of my suspicions about Gina were confirmed. Frankly, uh, she admitted that she was never into politics before, never cared about politics, uh, never had any political ideology, and in fact, never even voted until 2020. She talked about how she started becoming a little more interested in politics because of the shutdowns in California, which she said, uh, quote, I didn't like the shutdowns because I couldn't work. Well, yeah. join nice. the club. Yeah. That makes if that makes you a conservative, I'm just I'm a little confused. Oh, you don't like shutdowns? Oh, you're part of the conservative movement. Yeah. yeah. So she said after she voted for the first time in her life in 2020, uh, she had a feeling she had a feeling and I stress the word feeling that her vote wasn't safe. So she essentially bought she, she, she brought a feeling to the to the fact fight, because as we talked about before, our voting system is remarkably safe. So, again, I don't understand how feeling like something was fishy makes her a conservative. And I think my buddy Justin, as an actual conservative, was also a little triggered by this interview. So mm-hmm. he called me up and said, I need to do a rant about this. So let's give him some room to do it. Justin, rants by Jay, go. All right. So I watched some of this interview as well. I was planning on watching the whole thing, but 10 minutes in, I turned it off. I could not listen to her talk anymore. Here's a fighter and an actress. I say this to distinguish her from a politician or pundit or commentarian, right? The bar wasn't all that high in terms of her political prowess is what I'm saying. But a fighter and an actress who was fired for tweeting political statements, whether you agree or disagree with either act being interviewed by one of the biggest political outlets and personalities in the country. Now, I'm not saying you need to be able to quote Thomas Paine, but people, if you are going to engage in political debate or conversation, it wouldn't hinder you to educate yourself on the subject. I'm definitely not saying shut up and sing. We know where I fall on that. 
But if you're going to open your mouth and have something political come out of it, educate yourself. Read a freaking book. Listen to an audiobook. Read an article. This woman, after making a political statement, made a deal with a political outlet, went on to a political show, and sort of mumbled her way through an interview and pretty much said nothing. Now, I understand what Daily Wire gets out of this, what they're doing with the whole canceling cancel culture and fighting back. I get it. I even like it. They're trying to engage in the culture war. They've created a news outlet. They're doing their best to create entertaining content, adding to that films and television. But in my opinion, with this particular statement, they're making the problem worse by not doing the other things they're good at at the same time. I'm guessing they're thinking this is their moment. They must seize the day. But in actuality, by leaving nuance and education out of the statements that they're making, something they usually do, they're feeding the exact people that are the problem for the non-Trumpers within the GOP right now. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, Rob Clay and I have our new Instagram debates, and they're really fun. Recently, Rob asked me to define conservatism, and I obliged. Here are some of the tenets I came up with, none of which Gina Carano mentioned in her interview. A belief in the following. Limited government. Lower taxes. Supply-side economics. Free market capitalism. Private programs over government programs. Deregulation. Restrictions on labor unions. Strong borders in the fight against illegal immigration. Strong national security, defense, and interventionist foreign policy. A return to traditional Judeo-Christian values. And this is in the shadow of what a MAGA conservative believes. And a MAGA conservative believes some of the following. They're a fan of guns. They like aggressive partisanship. They love a wall. They like America first and probably don't know what that means. They believe that there was enough voter fraud to overturn the election. And that's all I could come up with. Now, of course, I'm generalizing here. Uh, There are absolutely MAGA conservatives that are capable of engaging in a debate of the issues, but they're typically politicians. Now, here's what those people will will be aware of and believe in. Populism, economic nationalism or neoliberal capitalism, which is essentially free market capitalism, but also social and religious nationalism. Economic isolationism, which is anti-globalization, isolationist and unilateralist foreign policy, immigration restrictionism or nativism, trade protectionism. And here's what the scary part of that contingent believe. QAnon, the Great Reset, and Bill Gates' COVID vaccine conspiracy theories, and that Mike Pence could have overturned the election if he wanted to. And my point in all of this is that these last few In fact, that whole last category are not conservative platforms. Other than the fact that it would cost us all the elections until the end of time, I would love for the Trump contingent of the Republican Party to form their own. Sounds like heaven to me, except for the fact that Trump voters now make up too much of the Republican Party to turn back, which makes me question how much the Republican base knows about or knew about Republican politics in the first place. Maybe they changed their mind. I don't think we'll ever really know. But my point is this. Just calling yourself a conservative while people might believe you does not make you a conservative. If you do believe that Bill Gates has cloned himself a trillion times and miniaturized all those mini clones and then placed all of those miniaturized clones into the COVID vaccines, probably Pfizer, not Moderna, then say these things on Twitter, then get fired from your job. Please, please just say you're a liberal. I'm kidding. But my point is that a belief in a conspiracy theory or not liking what the other side has to say doesn't make you a conservative. You may be something else entirely, like a fascist, for example. So take the time to find out what you are. Examine your beliefs. Compare them with this historicity of the parties, our country, our constitution. Just stop telling people you're a conservative. You aren't. And you're making our party dumber. Why don't you read a book instead? Rant over. Excellent. I think that's the best rant you've ever done, Justin. Thank and, you. and you know, I agreed with almost every single thing you said. So Excellent. I want to... 
yeah, I want to expound on it a little bit and and have a, a little bit of a conversation here mm-hmm. um, quickly because um, we had talked about last week. You had brought up the uh, I think it was a bill in California yeah. that was trying to uh, establish political affiliation as a protected class. In other yeah. words, like like. Uh, like LGBT, right? Mm-hmm. Like religion, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, political affiliation would be a poli- a protected class. Now, I you know, I've been really thinking about th- this in the wake of this Gina Carano situation, and after listening to that interview, of course, she did with Ben Shapiro, and I've been thinking to myself, okay, we ha- <sighs> there are parts of uh, of this I would absolutely support. Like, yeah. for instance, if a kid is at school and says. I'm a conservative and believe in limited government. Yeah. Free markets. And they're getting ridiculed for that or, mm-hmm. you know, mistreated by their teachers or discriminated against. Absolutely. Yeah. That should not happen. Right. Mm-hmm. If a kid is at school and says, I uh, am a Christian and go to church every week and they're yeah. being discriminated yeah. against or, you know, at school or the workplace, whatever, wherever it is, if they're being discriminated for that, absolutely. But there is no definition that has that I have seen at least as to what would be included in the political affiliation, and this is right. what I worry it's, about. It's a fair. Because, it's a fair thing, right? Yeah. Are we going to let, let's say you, you ever heard of the flat Earth Society? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so there are for those who don't know, there are tens of thousands of people who belong to this flat Earth Society that believe the Earth is flat. That's okay? their truth, Rob. Right. That's that, that's their truth. And frankly, the funny part about it is they have like yearly conventions at places yeah. like the Marriott where where I have my court reporting convention. So they're, they're not canceled by the Marriott. The Marriott still hosts them, right? You know where and, they should do a convention? Where? On a plane where you can see the curvature of the Earth. <laughs> know, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so like, and like a thousand of these people show up at the convention and talk about how the Earth is flat, right? And they mm-hmm. really believe this stuff, right? Yeah. And... It's crazy. So what I'm worried about is that that's a dissenting opinion from mm-hmm. the mainstream, of course. Yeah. Is there going to be, are we, are we treading a path where a kid in school starts arguing with his science teacher that the earth is flat and, you know, then gets ridiculed by his classmates and claims this is a conservative point of view because I'm just dissenting from mainstream opinion. Is mm-hmm. that going to be protected under political affiliation? That's yeah. what I'm, what I'm concerned about. Well, it's interesting. You, you, I would draw a, a, a comparison to what we talked about earlier with the history of certain things that are, are, are that some of which are provable, I guess. Right. Right. I, I could say the same way that the earth is round. You can prove the historicity of recent events. Yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. That's going to be an interesting thing as people come in with alternative versions of history. If they're ridiculed for it, is that a protection? Is that a protection that should be uh, employed? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it's really interesting, and and that's why I don't think this kind of bill would work unless it was so clearly defined that yeah. political affiliation covers X, Y, and Z. And I even feel that way about, frankly, about MAGA hats mm-hmm. because people there are a segment of our population that wears the MAGA hat that is not conservative they just yeah. like trump right yeah. and should that be protected under a uh, political affiliation where do we draw the line it's too vague that's mm-hmm. the problem yeah. and you know just to give an example like let's say you were a hedge fund donor okay and you have high-end clients right and you have uh, dozens of account executives and one of your account executives is 
not just a flat earther, but one of these people like the Trump people are who scream about it on the Internet, mm-hmm. on you know, and keep their keep their Facebook profile public so that everyone could see. Right. Yeah. And you as the owner who has high end clients are looking at this saying this is not good for my business. If somebody sees this, they're going to think this person is a kook. Yeah. You would you would be justified in firing that person. Right. I think it's it's a conversation you have with the person. I think you say look, this is bad for business. Are you willing to work with me? Can you maybe make your page private? I think there are things that you do before you just fire them. Right. But in, but in the situation of Gina Carano, she is a person already with a, prof, uh, with a public profile. She mm-hmm. is working for a company that is dealing with children. And again, I don't want to, I'm not saying that she's a flat earther, that conspiratorial. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is that she uh insinuated that there were uh you know hoaxes uh, attached to the pandemic she felt that the election was fraudulent and therefore said that it was and never provided any evidence and i could see how the executives at at disney especially in the time period that we were in at that time after 16 and everything that happened and the heat that's surrounding that would say this person with a public profile and a public persona is a representative of our company and we just don't need this i'm sorry so again i still i still would attest that this is not cancel culture this is a private company deciding this was not good for business and had gina carano just kept these opinions to herself it wouldn't have happened but then you have the right you have people like ben shapiro who are saying you should be able to speak out that's the conservative principle the Mm -hmm. first amendment the problem is i get very wishy-washy about where we draw the line of you know what we're going to consider conservative thought that's all i I agree with that only to the fact that i don't think that it's necessarily conservative thought i do think she she should be able to voice those opinions i think that they were innocuous enough again we don't need to rehash yeah Yeah. uh you know if you want to hear what i think on it go back and listen to the last episode uh but but yeah i i I agree in the fact that that the fact that she said those things doesn't make her a conservative and the fact that and i think ben shapiro and the daily wire need to think twice before they open their 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 umbrella to bring people like this in uh but i don't think she should have been fired for saying the those the things that she said i've seen far worse out there that actually do deserve um yeah those punishments and editor-in-chief clay cogman who uh seems to typically fall fall down on my side of these kind of arguments actually agrees with you on this Mm -hmm. one that it was like overly sensitive and crazy right i just think it has to do with the time period we're in and i am disputing that this was cancel culture i just think i think i think that you're more empathizing with the company than you are than you are necessarily agreeing with anything else you're just saying Mm -hmm. i understand how you you would decide to do this right Right. It's I mean, it's a complex topic. And and I think we all have to look out for this more and more because I'm seeing, um, you know, even the way the Daily Wire brought on Candace Owens. Now, Mm -hmm. Candace Owens is is an intelligent uh, commentator in terms of uh, she's very prolific, but she is also uh, says fraudulent things all the time. She says incorrect things. Um, she's a firebrand. She's certainly a provocateur. And I'm guessing that's why they they brought her on. But but I think it cheapens the brand because Mm -hmm. this person then becomes a representative of conservatism. And when they're pitching ideas that are false or even just extremely controversial, what does that do? Why is that good for conservatism? I think there, there is this, this, this desire now on the right to just bring on anyone. And, you know, frankly, what happened here with the daily wire and Gina Carano is that the right is so desperate 
for a for to win a part of the culture yeah that, cultural outlet right and mm-hmm. to have an icon and mm-hmm. gina carano is a is a badass i mean she was a mma full fighter yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. she she was you know, she played this cara dune you know she she is so i think people were on the right were sort of chomping at the bit like we could have her like we we should bring yeah, her she's, in she's and in she's calling herself zeitgeist. a conservative now yeah right. exactly right right yeah. so i guess it, it, to a certain extent it worked and she yeah she 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 could be a new cultural figure i will just say just to 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 button this up i would say the same thing on the left like for instance a pervasive conspiracy theory on the left is anti-vax you know yeah. now I, I i've made the prediction i think we're going to see that happening on the right as well mm-hmm. but um if somebody in in school was an anti-vaxxer or something or started talking you know saying those kind of things should that be protected political affiliation as well right. because mm-hmm. it's a pervasive left-wing conspiracy like we have to draw the line somewhere that's all yeah. i'm saying i hear what you're saying absolutely anyway moving on guys this is the last segment of the week, and we're going to keep this one tight. This is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. So the topic of the day this week is Rush Limbaugh and the rise of alternative media. Now, as I briefly mentioned last week, Limbaugh is one of the most polarizing and controversial figures in American political history. Uh, I personally cannot stand the guy for a myriad of reasons. Uh, There's absolutely no denying that over the course of his 30 plus year career on the radio in which he would broadcast three hours every day, five days a week, he said a lot of abhorrent, racist, sexist, bigoted and misogynistic things. Some of these things he was later apologetic about as societal standards changed throughout his career. Some of them he wasn't apologetic about. But what we're more interested in talking about is the undeniable influence Rush had on the rise of alternative media and giving a voice to many people in this country who didn't feel that they had a voice at that point in time. So I think a good place for us to start is with my buddy Justin, who uh, is going to give us a buzz history on how Rush Limbaugh broke the media monopoly of the day. Justin, make me warm and fuzzy. Hit me with some buzzy. Greetings to you conversationalists all across the fruited plain. Welcome once again to the most listened to radio talk show in America. The Rush Limbaugh program on the Excellence in Broadcasting Network. Program emanating from high atop the Excellence in Broadcasting building in New York. But as long as I'm here, ladies and gentlemen, it really doesn't matter where here is. Welcome to Buzz History, Rush Limbaugh and the Rise of Alternative Media. Rush Limbaugh, if you don't know, was a conservative commentator, author, television show host, and best known as the host of the radio show, The Rush Limbaugh Show, nationally syndicated on AM and FM radio stations. After a number of stints at various radio stations, Limbaugh found his voice after the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine by the FCC on August 5, 1987, which had required that stations provide free airtime for responses to any controversial opinions that were broadcast. This meant that stations could broadcast editorial commentary without having to present opposing views. After launching his Rush Limbaugh show and personality in Sacramento, Limbaugh was hired by ABC in New York City, debuting just weeks after the DNC and just before the RNC, and his show swept the nation and changed the course of news media forever. The history of alternative media goes back to the advent of media itself. In the West, 
Gutenberg printing press developed around the year 1440. It challenged the established system, providing an access point for information the common person did not have prior. That information was the Bible, which was previously only available to clergy. When the first newspapers were developed in Europe, information previously only available to the hereditary aristocracy was all of a sudden accessible by a new business class. In the early to mid-19th century, English radical papers challenged the status quo on topics such as religion and human rights, ultimately resulting in a freedom of the press. In 1934, William Hearst's newspaper turned conservative, opposing FDR's New Deal. The Los Angeles Times was a conservative newspaper until 1952. The Chicago Tribune, the same until the late 60s, as were magazines Time and Fortune. At the same time, conservative activists began to found their own magazines to counter alleged liberal bias in mainstream media and to propagate conservative points of view. Human Events was founded in 1944 by The Washington Post former editor Felix Morley. Libertarian, pro-free market journal The Freeman was founded in 1950 by a group of journalists that later joined the National Review, which was founded in 1955 by author and journalist William F. Buckley Jr. The Review became the beacon of the post-war conservative movement, drawing conservatives and ex-communist intellectuals to the magazine. Through this vehicle, fusionism was birthed, mixing traditionalism, libertarianism, and anti-communism, the pervasive philosophy of the movement known as the New Right. The 50s, 60s, and 70s saw the advent of Walter Cronkite, consistently seen as the most trusted man in America, as he, through his anchor desk on the CBS Evening News, reported on the most traumatic and triumphant moments of American life. The moon landing, the Kennedy assassinations, and the event that changed Cronkite and therefore news media forever, the Vietnam War. It was during the coverage of this war that Cronkite broke with his brand of unbiased objectivity, saying, quote, we're just not going to win, and the best thing we can do is get out. From his coverage of the 1968 Chicago protests, recently dramatized in Aaron Sorkin's trial of the Chicago 7 on, Cronkite, privately a liberal the entire time, was partially held responsible, along with Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, for nationalizing liberal media bias. This was inflamed by the Nixon presidency, with constant digs from him and Vice President Agnew, attacking the media for bias, calling them, quote, nattering nabobs of negativity. These decades saw the emergence of conservative talk radio, though their outreach was limited due to the Fairness Doctrine. After Nixon's resignation, overtly conservative news outlets included the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Post, and the Washington Times. Magazines included the National Review, the Weekly Standard, and the American Spectator. However, in 1987, after the FCC voted to revoke the Fairness Doctrine, the floodgates broke wide open. With the increased popularity and superior sound quality of FM radio, most stations moved to this new format, leaving the AM airwaves absent. This coupled with the abolition of content restrictions led to the advent of syndicated and programmed conservative talk shows, most notably the Rush Limbaugh Show. Since its nationally syndicated premiere in 1988, this show has become the highest rated talk show in the United States, airing on almost 600 stations worldwide. Limbaugh's style incorporated a bit of comedy, a lot of anger, and a constant, relentless stream of liberal bashing. Limbaugh took center stage during the presidencies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and dubbed himself the most dangerous man in America. He pushed conservatives on his show to hard positions on the right while continually demonizing the left. He joined Republican candidates at fundraisers, helping the party regain the House majority through a populist agenda with remnants that are still strong inside the GOP. He became the Elvis of broadcast radio, as one biographer would call him. The whole idea of fake news was created by his show, as he made headline after headline, 
insulting environmental wackos and describing animal rights activists as a bunch of poop burgers. Although he was severely criticized by the left for his offensive, sometimes even cruel tactics, and his listener base for being generally uneducated, a 2007 study by the Pew Research Center found that his listener base were on average better informed than listeners of NPR and were more likely than listeners of public radio to have college degrees. In the end, the populist movement of the Trump presidency pushed out classic GOP conservatives and outlets such as Fox News, Breitbart, and Infowars eclipsed the political influence of the very man who paved their way. Here is Rush Limbaugh on Rush Limbaugh. What I do is represent a group of people who aren't heard from very much or portrayed very properly in most of the major media today. The average normal American guy and his family. I travel the country every weekend. Last year, 45 out of 52 weekends. I see and meet and talk to the people who make this country work. I was born in the Midwest. I have what I consider to be traditional, good old family values. That is why I am so well able, so easily able to relate to the masses. I, for example, know beyond a shadow of a doubt with more confidence than anyone else why a Northeastern liberal will never be elected president of this country. Because this country does not choose its leaders based upon people who have movies made about them, which in essence criticize the country. Proud to be an American, stand up for it all the time, and celebrate that fact. I also do it with a lot of fun and a lot of humor and a lot of entertainment. Uh, my nickname, by the way, is Laser. Rush Laser Limbaugh. You know why? That's because I have the unique ability to take the opposing point of view, which in most cases for me is liberalism, and just nuke it. Just laser it out of existence without very many words. That's how good I am. It is shocking. It is frightening how good I am when I get on a roll. And I sense that I'm on a roll now. Let me, something, something you should get used to tonight, ladies and gentlemen. I have several addictions. I am addicted to self-praise. I can't stop it. We have done a television show tonight that I think is uh, going to turn a lot of heads. Precisely because... Many other shows would have attempted to keep you from seeing what happened in this studio tonight. It happened. We don't hide behind it. We are thankful for the opportunity. I personally am thankful for the opportunity that uh, CBS has given me to do this show tonight. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope we get a chance to do it again. I really would like to get to know you. My name is Rush Limbaugh. Thank you. Good night. All right, Justin, excellent background there on uh, media and Rush. Uh, I think the most surprising thing for me is, um, you know, I think the most surprising thing for our audience also is just how long this media, left-wing media bias has been uh, a narrative. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, especially if you're just getting into politics, um, might think that this is something new, and it certainly was amped up with Donald Trump, but it certainly did not start. No, I mean, look, it, it comes and goes in waves. And I think we had a downturn for a long time. You saw it flare up a little bit with Obama. And then it sort of, you know, it, it, it right. really came on strong with Trump. And so everyone's coming to it for the first time. And they're saying, gosh, this is the worst the country's ever been. It's right. crazy to the left and crazy to the right. And yeah. we've, we've sort of been there before. Now, Rush Limbaugh has, was sort of considered an anti-intellectual. Do you think that the educational background of most reporters, you know, a lot of them have Ivy League degrees. They have for a long time. A lot of them have have uh, higher education degrees. 
Do you think that adds to the sort of liberal elitism of the media and that perception of them being disconnected with the bulk of America? Yes, I completely agree with you. I think that that most certainly plays into it. Most of America, I mean, you saw it like we've seen college except uh, college graduation rates rise significantly. But, you know, back in the Cronkite days or when Limbaugh even started, that number was much lower than it is now. And so you, you had a lack of education for the everyman, which is right. why someone like Limbaugh is so attractive because mm-hmm. he's plain spoken. He right. speaks your language. He may be incredibly educated, but how he messages, much like Trump, uh, is to the, the, the layman, to the person right. who says, I don't like these liberal elites who graduate with 10 degrees. They have five PhDs and they don't get me. And right. I think that's why he was so popular. And that's that definitely fuels the bias. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, some of this is reiterating a little bit of what of what Justin uh, touched upon in his buzz history. But, you know, I wanted to say that before Rush Limbaugh came along, there was absolutely no broadcast media that openly called themselves conservative. That's you know, right. uh, I think Justin mentioned in, in, in buzz that there was uh, print magazines like National Review, which have always been conservative. Um, and there have been conservative literature and philosophy for forever, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere from Ayn Rand to Milton Friedman, etc. But any conservative uh, conservatives that were appearing on broadcast media were doing so at the sort of as the uh, the the resident conservative on the show, if you will. Yeah. In other words, it wasn't their show; they were just guests. So, conservative thought leaders like Milton Friedman and and William F. Buckley did show up on network news way back when. Uh, and they, you know, they showed up from time to time. But again, it was just to be the sort of conservative voice in the room, not to run the show. And as Justin mentioned again in his Buzz History, the the FCC fairness doctrine is basically what incentivized media, uh, you know, network media to mm-hmm. have their occasional conservative on the show. And yeah. the demise of that fairness doctrine in 1986 uh, is what enabled, uh, or sorry, it was 1987, uh, is what enabled people like Rush to have their own shows, right? So, you know, like you said, that's when the floodgates opened. Exactly. Now, a lot of sort of left-wing media historians have written about the end to the fairness doctrine as being when things really started to change in media. And of course, I think it's hard to deny that the rise of alternative media has indeed come with some negatives. Mm -hmm. And the internet has really exacerbated those negatives by increasing access and the frequency that people are exposed to misinformation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because we all succumb to a certain extent to confirmation bias, a lot of people on the right who may be listening to this would say that maybe it's me and those who are getting their news from so-called mainstream sources who are the ones being exposed to misinformation. And this is a problem that's not going away anytime soon because most people exist in their echo chamber, right? So, you know, I wish in a perfect world that all news networks would stick to the facts and that they could, they, they you know, facts that they can prove and, and focus more on ideological conversations like we have been yes. having here, Agreed. because I think those are valid and interesting discussions. But in the end, that's a completely unrealistic pipe dream. I was just going to say, the second that media, media conglomerates started picking up news stations, yeah, uh, that all ended. Of course. And, you know, Fox News... Uh, which Fox News is sort of the the 
the pinnacle of, mm-hmm. of, I guess you could say, conservative or right-wing media. Well, not, not anymore, um, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I, I, who I knows, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, they spent a ton of time giving airtime to people like Donald Trump who were making overtly false claims that Barack Obama wasn't an American citizen. And that's the negative stuff right there. That goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is what what classifies as conservative thought, right? And too often, I think, Fox News and other right-wing outlets fall into the trap of classifying anything that dissents from mainstream thought as conservative. And and Rush in his later years, especially in the Trump years, was doing the same thing. Yeah. Um and he got on board. I mean he was he was not a Trump fan in the beginning. In the beginning, oh, he was so on board later on though. Uh, yes, he, he became was. one of his biggest champions. And, you know, Rush was overtly and very proudly anti-climate change. He mm-hmm. considered the entire thing a hoax. He used to go to college campuses, um, you know, with a lot of protesting people outside sure. and talk and talk about how the whole thing was a liberal hoax and that there was no evidence behind it at all. These kind of things are damaging. Well, they have real world consequences. Here's the problem. I completely mm-hmm. agree with you. And the, yeah. the big issue with this, and we touched upon it actually, in a different way with art and profit. But yeah. the same kind of problem happens when you start talking about news and profit. Mm-hmm. Because this guy knew where his bread was buttered. Mm-hmm. He knew who paid the bills yeah. and he catered to them like no one else did. And right. he entertained them. And he right. knew how to entertain them. He knew how to pull their strings. He knew he how to He said he was rated. an entertainer first, by Absolutely. the way. That was and always he was. His thing. I mean, yeah. listen yeah. to him for 30 mm-hmm. seconds. You can tell yeah. that. And he got his ratings, he got paid. He made huge deals, and he did that because he was the loudest voice, the most extreme voice, and there's no way to know how much of that was him actually believing what he said and how much of that was him knowing that this would get him the biggest ratings. We just don't know, and that's the the problem, this this issue between news media and, Mm -hmm. and money. Yeah, so, you know... I don't have to sit here and list off all the really terrible things that he said. And there were many. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you want to do if you guys want to do your research on that, trust me, it's not hard to find. There are dozens of YouTube videos that just play every bad thing he ever said. Right. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we document all this stuff these days. But beyond that, I think Rush had a real connection to the sort of pulse of America yeah. and the working class that people like Walter Cronkite, as we mentioned, just never had. And because of that, he became a thought leader for the Republican Party because he had his finger on the pulse of what those people in the middle of the country were connected to. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I think I talked about this in one of our first episodes, but Rush had sort of an honorary institute that he founded in the 80s called the Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a real school or anything. It was like uh, more like a Rush Limbaugh training course and you get a certificate at the end of like five weeks or something uh, as like, you know, an intro to what it means to be conservative kind of thing. Andrew Breitbart, for instance, who founded Breitbart News Network, credits Rush's Institute for teaching him, quote, everything he knew about conservatism. So it was it was a it was a thing, a big thing. Rush Limbaugh is responsible for all of these outlets. Of course, of course. But around the time that Obama and this is this is the point I was making is around the time Obama was elected in 2008. Rush changed the name of the Institute from the Mm -hmm. Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies to the Institute for Advanced and Anti-Leftist Studies. 
Now, this was Rush Limbaugh making a statement to the Republican Party. And I believe that message was that traditional conservative principles were just not connecting anymore with the bulk of the country. You know, maybe because people own, you know, less people own their businesses mm-hmm. or less people were going to church every week, whatever the reason is, you know, doesn't really matter. Rush recognized that if the right loses the culture war, it's game over. Like mm-hmm. they'll they'll never win again. Yeah. They have to retain a certain part of that culture war. So, you know, conservative, quote, the word conservative got overtly changed to anti-leftist because being anti-leftist is much more relatable to the majority of middle America than limited government is, yeah. right? And I've talked a lot on the show about the distinction between liberalism and leftism. But in the news today, we got two glaring examples that I just want to talk about in sidebar for a second no, here. These so, are perfect examples. I right. Think. So so first, a California bill was put forward that would require gender neutral stores and it would fine retailers a thousand dollars for having separate boy and girl departments. Okay. Now I have mm-hmm. a girl. I have a girl and a boy. Okay, yeah. when, when they run into the into Target and I take them to the toy section, Please the boy rock. goes Tar- to the G. Right, right. The boy runs to the GI Joes and the planes and the guns, mm-hmm. and the girl runs to the Barbie dolls. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that or controversial about it. And you know it, that's just insane to me. Right. It the is. second. Right. Well, before I mean, you even get to the second. Yeah. I mean, forget about what they're doing in terms of the specificity of it. Right. Talk about a government overreach. Who says they can have a say into what private business is doing with their de- child departments? It's all in an effort to be so sensitive to this very small uh, subset of the population, yeah. which I'll get to in a minute. You know, so the second one was perhaps even sillier. Yeah. Uh, it was the Hasbro Toys announced that Mr. Potato Head is no longer a Mr. The com- so, quote, the company that makes the potato-shaped plastic toy is giving the spud a gender-neutral new name, just Potato Head. Yeah, no mention <laughs> the, of Mrs. Potato Head, by the way. Right. Completely ignored in all of this, which I feel horrible about. Exactly. Mrs. Potato Head is crying in, in her pillow right now, yeah. right? Uh, the, the, the change will appear on boxes this year. So what is leftism? That's leftism. Yeah. You know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any mainstream liberals that, uh, you know, like myself, that that think it's offensive to have a boy section and a girl section in the toy department of a department store. Like, like I said, I have a boy and I have a girl. And when we go to Target, you you could see the differences. There are biological differences that exist, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And that is the result of thousands of years of biology. Absolutely. And the attempt to erase that on behalf of less than 1% of the population that identifies as transgender or gender fluid is what people like Rush Limbaugh were bulwarks against. Yeah. You know, plain and simple. They were just like, we're not, we're not budging on this. This, this, this is wrong. And they would make fun of it. And they, mm-hmm. they, they made it into a thing. Unfortunately, he would make it into a thing that got people very angry, yeah. maybe even unnecessarily angry, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, you know, I was thinking, sidebar for one second here. Okay. I, I, I was reading a piece recently uh, about the power of one person to, to change an entire community. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the piece gave a great example using veganism. So okay. it, was, it was talking about how uh, there's a family of four, right? And the daughter comes home one day and says, Mom, I'm vegan now. And the mom says, oh, 
okay, well, uh, I, I I was planning chicken cutlets for dinner, and she's like, oh, well, you know, I'm vegan now. I don't I don't eat I don't eat meat. She's like, right. okay, I'll go out and I'll get you. I'll I'll, ma- I'll make something vegan for you, mm-hmm. right? So. She makes the, the, for the three other people in the family, she makes the chicken cutlets and she makes something vegan for, for, for the daughter, right? Mm-hmm. And she maybe does this for a couple weeks, having to do the two meals until right. eventually it's just too, it's just too difficult to do this. It's, it's annoying her. She goes, you know what? It'll be better for our health. Why don't we just all become vegan? Let's right. just all, let's just be vegan. You know, we'll lose weight in the process. It'll be a win-win for everyone, right? So now this one girl has turned the entire family vegan. Now they're officially vegan, right? Yep. They live in a small town. They get invited to a barbecue in town. 50 people invited. They have to now say, oh, by the way, we're vegan. Is that okay? And the guy has to go, oh, well, I was planning on burgers and uh, hot dogs, but I guess I could do a vegan thing too. I'll put together a little vegan thing for you guys. So now because of these four people out of 50 people, he has got to make the vegan meal. And, uh, you know, the barbecue goes swimmingly and everything's great. And he goes, hey, maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll have another barbecue. Another barbecue happens and he remembers, oh God, I got to have that vegan thing. You know what? I've been hearing a lot about this beyond meat. You know, maybe, maybe I'll just have a vegan barbecue. Why not? I mean, who's going to care? It's really not a big deal. So now this one girl has turned the entire town vegan. And that, <laughs> that's the point. And the, the, the analogy I'm making here is that this is what is happening, I think, uh, when, when we see stories like what we just outlined. Yeah. I think there is this very small percentage of the population that actually believes in this stuff. Yeah. And they have a loud voice and they have a way of pressuring corporations. Well, they're given a loud voice. They're given the microphone. They are. And I think corporations are sort of like the guy, the barbecue guy and just saying mm-hmm. like, oh, just give them what they want. It's better than arguing about it and having to get in a big thing about it. Yeah. And then before we know it, within a couple years, I'm walking into a store to buy my kids toys and all the girls and boy toys are mixed in one aisle. And right. nobody really wants that except for this very small percentage of the population, yeah. less than one percent. Probably don't you know, have kids. Right, who probably don't even have kids, exactly. So, uh, you know, I think, again, um, Rush was really good at 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 sort of breaking that stuff down. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't mean, I, I don't want any of the left-wingers out there to think that I'm, I'm, I'm endorsing Rush or supporting him because he's said a ton of crazy things. But, you know, since he died last week, there has been a, a, a lot of op-eds written from right-wing and left-wing perspectives about his legacy. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them from the left have been very angry and uh, accusing him of breaking the country, which uh, even prompted a lot of the people writing these op-eds to say that they were glad he was dead, yeah, which, uh, as a Christian, I think uh, Justin doesn't doesn't appreciate that. No, I don't yeah. think anyone as a human shouldn't appreciate right. that. I mean, no one, <laughs> you know, what's important is your health. Yeah, and we're yeah I, was, I was being a little tongue-in-cheek about the Christian <laughs> part, but yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, that's just how controversial a force this guy was. But Justin and I were sent a social media post that a friend's dad had written that to me perfectly summed up how I feel about Rush Limbaugh's legacy. Uh, I have to keep this anonymous, but do you mind if I read it, Justin? Please. Because I think, honestly, I couldn't have written it better if I was writing about the legacy of Rush. I didn't experience what this with the, this person who wrote this experience exactly, but I think it's very relatable and it's exactly yeah. how I feel. So, uh, in a way that I suppose will sound morbid, I have been waiting for this day, not waiting for Rush Limbaugh to succumb to the cancer for which he has suffered and from which he is now mercifully f- free, but for what I would say. 
Uh, I have had a deep personal animus to this man. He made my father angrier than he needed to be in his old age. I say that as judgmentally as it sounds because I have known plenty of other seniors uh, and they were not as angry so frequently as my father was because their anger was not fed by listening to Rush Limbaugh's show day after day, year after year. As much as any other person in my lifetime, Rush Limbaugh transformed and coarsened our national conversation. Did he have principles? Absolutely he did. And I credit him with being informed and studious about what he saw as his principles. But the method that he chose from the platform that, in fairness, I have to say he built and earned for himself was like a drip of acid on America's national dialogue. Was he alone in this? Of course not. But he was catalytic. Uh, And I truly believe that in the wake of Rush Limbaugh and the crowd of lesser talent uh, who followed his lead, uh, we have become progressively angrier, at least those who overemphasize the importance of politics in their daily lives. And that was something else that Limbaugh and his disciples preached. Your politics defined you and more importantly, defined people you knew. So if your cousin was, say, a single woman who worked in some professional job and held opinions that could be described as feminist, she was a feminazi. We did not used to care about our neighbors' politics as much as we do now. Right-wing talk radio changed that, and I stand by that. I was a kid in my parents' living room on two election nights, Kennedy Nixon and Johnson Goldwater. Neighbors came over to watch. No, of course they did not agree, but they spoke and even joked rationally, and they played golf together later. And -and so-and-sos, you know, the so-and-sos might be Democrats, but they were our friends. That sentiment still exists, but in 21st century century America, it has become a minority opinion. Rush Limbaugh recast our society as the one where non-Californians take cynical and public delight in California forest fires, and where this week's non-Texans take similar delight in Texas's cold snap. Uh, We now choose our neighbors based on their politics where we can. Still, my hat is off to Limbaugh because he was a consummate entertainer. The angry hacks who bray and bark uh, for their two-hour shows on AM radios do not have his gift, just his anger. What conservatism has become since talk radio replaced thinking can be read like a scroll from the comment section in American Spectator or Town Hall. It must take effort to hate as much as these people do. It metastasized into the barbaric yawp of the Donald Trump presidency. We all watched it explode on January 6. More than any other American in our, of, of, of our lifetime, Rush Limbaugh had his foot on the gas pedal of what conservative conservatism became and its weekly quest for manufactured outrage and the marketing opportunities it came to offer as well from William Buckley and Ronald Reagan to my pillow rush outfitted right wingers in the brown shirts they now wear but it's personal for me because he made my father angrier than he needed to be and that experience i hope has taught me a lesson that i will remember as i grow older still on the first day of lent I am, I am mindful of the fact that as a Christian, I am directed to love my enemies. So Rush, while I work myself slowly up to something more closely approximate, approximating love that I can feel right now, I will wish for you the discovery of a peace that you did not communicate from the podium you commanded for so many years, because that peace passes understanding. 
And for someone who waged war against understanding for as many years as you did, you will find that peace redemptive. Right. So, yeah, very, that very says well basically written. everything. Yeah, extremely mm-hmm. well written um, and says everything I, uh, I want to say. So that's basically how I feel. You know, I, I like I like that comment uh, stated. I like that the comment stated that Rush was was an entertainer yeah. and entertainers are often provocateurs yeah. and provocateurs are often exhibiting a certain level of hyperbole, like you were saying, or mm-hmm. acting on behalf of their shtick, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, like another person, just very quickly on this, last last point I want to make, another person from the same era as Rush who comes to mind is Howard Stern. Yes. You know, Absolutely. like... You keep, ha- they go in the same sense. In my they're opinion. in the same... Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Howard Stern, in the 80s and 90s, he was very provocative. He said misogynistic things. He mm-hmm. said homophobic things. He made fun of all kind of kinds of yeah. cultures. He equal equal opportunity hater. It was a time when Americans had a lot more sense of humor about mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. Uh, the the in, the irony about Howard Stern is that he always felt stifled by the network. He was constantly getting you yeah. know, charged by the FCC and taken off the air. He felt so stifled by it that he moved to satellite radio. Mm-hmm. And then stifled himself because he has become almost a left-wing activist at Mm -hmm. this point. He has apologized for the way he behaved. Mm -hmm. He has adopted the new standards of today. Um, And, you know, now Rush never had that epiphany. You know, Rush, he remained as provocative as he ever was. But but two things that maybe point to the fact that it was perhaps – uh, more of an act than he led on. And mm-hmm. I just want to close with this, is that one, according to Ben Shapiro, Rush was known as the single largest tipper in America. Yeah. He would regularly leave a couple thousand dollars in cash at restaurants as a tip. That was like something he was known to do, right? So uh, number two, his producer, James Golden, who goes by the pseudonym Bo Snurdly, um, who has been with him from the very beginning, is a black man yeah. and is known to be Rush's longtime lifelong best friend so there you go for all the racist crap that comes out of his mouth his lifelong best friend was black yeah so yeah i guess the the point is we can't put everyone in little tiny boxes people are complex right Justin? completely and and so is the media i mean he look my bottom line is this he fought for what i consider to be a great many right things despite doing it in an aggressive sometimes very coarse and very inappropriate way yeah he's not the first nor will he be the last to do this for profit and what drives profits ratings and what drives ratings entertainment and yep. as i've said already tonight that's the through line we've seen with the news media it what it's what makes this whole reporting of the news in today's climate a problem this is no different and that's why we're here to solve this problem right yeah yeah, yeah. we're the <laughs> we're the uh, fairness doctrine reborn we, we are we are the fairness doctrine that's that's really good that's that's good we should start like working that into our motto or something the All fairness right, look, doctrine look, reborn. look for t-shirts yeah. If only people actually knew what the Fairness Doctrine was. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to put a definition of it on the back. <laughs> All righty, guys. We gave you a lot, as usual. You've come to expect it, and we always deliver with a lot, probably more than you even asked for. But uh, we're going to keep doing that because that's all we know how to do, right? Indeed. So we are taking off again next week. We will see you in two weeks, barring anything crazy. In the meantime, speaking of crazy, don't do anything crazy. And... uh you know, keep your ears to the grindstone, I guess they say. Yeah, just calm down, everybody. <laughs> calm the hell down, okay? Politics isn't life. Go uh, hug your kids, kiss your grandma. Amen.
Good night. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.